Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with Dr. Diana Malavi. She's the Chief of Pathology at Sinai Hospital of Baltimore and is well known for her indispensable book for trainees, The Practice of Surgical Pathology, A Beginner's Guide to the Diagnostic Process. We'll hear their conversation about pathology education and the transition from medical school to residency. We'll also hear Dr. Malavi's tips for preparing residents for community practice and hear about how Dr. Malavi got the idea to write her beginner's guide. Now here's your host, Dr. Jane. Hello, and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests inside and outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jane. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. I'm so excited today to have as our guest, Dr. Diana Malavi. Dr. Malavi is Chief of Pathology at the Sinai Hospital of Baltimore, and she's known to probably all pathology trainees for her indispensable book, The Practice of Surgical Pathology, A Beginner's Guide to the Diagnostic Process, which has helped bridge the gap between medical school and residency for generations, and which is now in a second edition. Welcome, Dr. Malavi. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So excited to have you here. But just to start off with, tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania, in uh, central Pennsylvania, which was the home of Penn State. I was a faculty kid. And so that's where I went to college. And then after that, came down here to Baltimore to do a PhD in neuroscience at Hopkins. And it didn't really take. I finished the PhD, but I decided that that was not going to be my career. And then so at that point, I went to medical school, sort of did them out of order. Went to medical school at WashU in St. Louis, which uh, was a fantastic town, and then ended up coming back to Baltimore. While I was in St. Louis, I got married. My husband was a resident at the time while I was a medical student. So it was fortunate that we were able to, you know, coordinate going to the same place. So I got to experience his internal medicine residency vicariously. <laughs> and it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, this was before the 80 hour work week. It was when there was just starting to be an awareness of that sort of thing. But I mean, 100 hour plus work weeks were not unusual in that residency. And so when he was done with residency and I was supposed to be matching, I actually made the decision to leave medicine, to step away from medicine for a little bit. We were thinking about starting a family. And so, and it also there was just the stress of one spouse trying to get a job while the other matches. And we were worried that was going to be really difficult. So I graduated from medical school and then he got a job here in Baltimore and I decided to just work in education for a couple of years. I actually didn't know for sure if I was going to go back to medicine or not. And this was long before pathology ever occurred to me. Like I, I really at that time was interested in PM&R actually. That was what I was looking to go into before I decided to defer. So I worked in education. I was the administrator for a summer program, the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, if anyone's heard of that. And we started a family and had a baby. And so it was while I was home on maternity leave with my first daughter that there happened to be another woman in my townhouse court on the court with us who had a baby the same age. They'd been born within a couple of weeks of each other. And so it was also her first baby and we walked around and we sort of bonded. She was a pathology resident at Hopkins in her first year, I think. And so, I, you know, we started to talk about this a lot. And, and I was also at this point, you know, deciding that I really did want to get back into medicine. But by that time, I'd been out for three years. And, you know, I wasn't sure if it was such a good idea for me to go back into a clinical residency and try to take care of people in the MICU. Because, I mean, I just was really rusty on all sorts of clinical medicine. Also, I didn't 
really want to do the hardcore residency that my husband had done, having a new baby. And the more I learned about pathology, the more interested I became. It was just something that I was never exposed to in medical school outside of, you know, second year course, never even considered never thought about, but learning more about it, it was clear that I was really well suited for it. I had done in my PhD, a lot of anatomy and histology. So I already was used to spending a lot of time in a microscope. So I learned about it and applied to come to Hopkins. And I was, since I wasn't a med student, I was outside of the match and they just accepted me. And that's how I started at Hopkins. So it was a very sort of convoluted pass and kind of dumb luck that I ended up where I did. When I interviewed for the residency program, there was a lot of like, how do you know you want to do this exactly? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you just doing this because you can't do anything else? I mean, I, people almost came right out and asked me that. So, which I mean, fair enough. Like I didn't have demonstrated interest as we would say now, but it turned out to be just absolutely the perfect field for me. Like I could not have designed a better job for myself. So it all worked out. Wow. Do you still keep in touch with that pathology resident who uh, had the baby around the same time as you? <laughs> On Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> she moved to California. Well, we, we have to thank her for, for how, yes. introducing you to the field. <laughs> so that's fantastic. It's interesting that you mentioned that you know you had this experience with histology and anatomy in your PhD program. That's something we kind of share in common, not that I did a PhD program, but I spent a lot of time. One of my first jobs straight out of high school during the summer was working in a developmental biology lab. And one of the first things I did was do frozen sections of mouse embryos uh -huh. um, and look <laughs> under a microscope to sex amnions and things like that. And then I ended up doing some psychiatry research and, and working, looking at hippocampal neurogenesis before I came to medical school. So I, I definitely think that having those early experiences, knowing you can work with a microscope, and right, enjoying right. the experience of working with yeah. your eyes is something that we have in common. So going back a little bit further, did you always know that you wanted to be in medicine or science? Yeah, science, yes, absolutely. Yeah. My parents were both in science. They were faculty at Penn State. But no, not medicine, because I just didn't know anyone in medicine. I didn't really have any exposure to it. So I think if I had had an earlier exposure to medicine, I probably would have gone straight into that rather than taking the detour of the PhD. In my experience growing up, if you liked science, you got a PhD. That was just what you did. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. But, you know, academics, basic science right now is a really brutal way to make a living. I mean, it's great if you love it, but I compared the two experiences of grad school and med school as, you know, medical school, it's, it's like you're hanging off the back of a train on a skateboard. And as long as you can hang on and not fall off and wipe out, you're going to get to the station. They will get you there. Whereas in grad school, you're on the skateboard pulling the train. <laughs> <laughs> and if you let up for an instant, you will never get to the station. And so it's just, it's a very different, different pace. Different types of people, I think, are well suited, well -suited to, yeah. Yeah, to one of those tracks or the other. Yeah. And so I'm curious, after you had gone to medical school, what was the transition like making that decision to step away from medicine, you know, either temporarily or potentially yeah. for the long term? I mean, definitely my husband thought I was crazy. And I was, I mean, I had gotten so far as to apply for the match in PMNR and, you know, I was interviewing. So I was pretty far along and just sort of abruptly dropped out of the match. I mean, I don't know what the medical school really thought about it, but it just, I don't know. It just, it didn't worry me 
too much. I kind of figured it would it would work out. I you know I had a job pretty quickly, so I knew I wasn't just going to be sitting around watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in retrospect, it was probably not the best planning, <laughs> but it did work out. I don't think I would have been nearly as happy in PM&R as I am now in pathology. So I just have to kind of be grateful that it all did work out. I think that's really important to be able to share that experience that you don't necessarily have to go through everything sequentially in the order that's designated for us, because I think that it is both a blessing and a curse that medicine is so well organized. It's kind of like you go to undergrad, you maybe take a little bit of time off before you go to medical school. Maybe if, if you're so inclined or you go straight to medical school, you go to medical school, you pick your specialty and then you got to do residency and then you got to right. do fellowship and sometimes another fellowship and then you get a job. And it's almost like once you go into medical school, the next, I don't know, what is that? 12 years of your life are yeah. pretty much planned out. And to be able to share that if you want to step out of that timeline for a period of time or indefinitely that that's okay. And that is an okay thing to do in the long term, both for yourself and your family is really, really powerful. Because I do think so much of it is, yeah, you step into med school, and then boom, your calendar is You're on the treadmill. (laughs) There's no getting off. You're you're hanging on, you're on that skateboard. And you know, if you fall off, that's it, right? And that's so many people have been successful with not following the rules of steps in those order. And so I think that's great. You know, I sort of view it as like a, a video game where every room that you go into, like there's some little special skill or award or, or medal that you can pick up, you know, along the way. And the more of those you pick up along the way, the more tools you have, you know, down the line. And when I spent my three years outside of medicine working as this administrator, I was working as a senior administrator in a fairly large educational program. I was working with budgets. I was working with human resources. I was working with curricular development. I was working with management. And all of those are really important when it comes to being the medical director of a lab. So none of those skills went to waste. I'm glad that I did it all. And those are definitely skills that you usually don't get in medical school or residency or fellowship and definitely invaluable. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your book. You know, how did you get the idea to create this kind of beginner's guide? It's the book that I was recommended when I started residency. I recommend it to, you know, whenever medical students are like, yeah, I really want to do some reading before residency. The first answer is, well, don't do the reading before residency. Take some time off because you'll have yeah. a lot of stuff to learn in residency. Right. Just, you know, take care of yourself. And then the second answer to the question is by Malavi, right? And so tell us a little bit about that. So, okay. So, you know, now that I had been out of medicine for three years when I started my pathology residency, and I had had no particular exposure to pathology in medical school. So the result of that is that when I started my pathology residency, I was so dumb. Like I was rock stupid. I knew nothing, <laughs> nothing. Like it was embarrassing. And I was trying to catch up, but it's really hard to catch up because, you know, like mm-hmm. Robbins is what you yep. do in medical school. Robbins does not help you sign out a colon cancer mm-hmm. at all. And my other choice were like the giant atlases, you know, like Sternberg and Fletcher, which again, were just you know, drinking from a fire hose. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way, especially, and remember I had a baby, <laughs> I had, you yeah. know, a 14 month old at home. So I just struggled so much to get up to speed, you know, even just to catch up to my peers. And like, I wasn't too worried about it. I knew I would get there. Like I was the person who was always going to ask the stupid question out loud. And I asked a lot of them and I got a lot of weird looks and I know people thought I was just an idiot. But that's how I learned was by asking those 
stupid questions. So that's one aspect is when I did get around to writing the book, I remembered all of those stupid questions. And that was part of my agenda in writing the book is just writing down the answers to all those stupid questions up front. <laughs> so no one had to ask them. And so as I was going through at, at Hopkins, there were certain specialty rotations. Like, so GI was its own rotation, GI biopsies. And, and surge path was hard because surge path was, you know, the whole universe of surge path. That was really overwhelming. But GI was like this one finite thing. You know, I could just read a few chapters about GI and kind of know what I was doing. And also we had some great teachers at Hopkins. Dr. Montgomery at the time was one of my favorites. She just had this way of just giving this very pragmatic, well-organized information, the approach to the slide, just the way she structured her approach to the slide, I thought was so easy to learn from. And so as I would go through the, the month on GI, I would gradually get to know what I was doing. I would know the differentials I was looking for. I would know what to look for in each kind of biopsy. And by the end of the month, I felt comfortable. And then I went off of GI for six months. And then I came back and it was like I was starting over again because I hadn't thought about it for six months. And so the second time I was on GI, I was like, okay, I got to write this all down. Like when I get to the end of this month or as I go through the month, I need to write myself, you know, as if I were teaching myself, here's what you look for. And here's how you evaluate an esophagus. Here's how you evaluate a stomach biopsy. Here's the way to tell atrophic gastritis from, you know, H. pylori. And so that was the first chapter. It was esophagus and stomach. And it wasn't a chapter at the time, obviously. It was just a little handout on my thumb drive. But then, you know, when I got on hematopathology, I did the same thing, sort of struggled to kind of put it all together as I was on the rotation. But once I had it all together, I wrote it down. And so, you know, I gradually did this for more and more organ systems. And then it just really helped me to learn as I went along. And then at the end of my third year, so we had some didactic conferences. We had like the twice a week, the morning lecture from faculty. And then we had the unknowns. And then we had this board review study thing that a bunch of us got going as third years, just sort of a after hours group study. We would do an organ system and, and drill down as part of a board study program. So I got the idea, what if we did that, but for interns, if we did by organ system, but not like board study level, sort of the other end of the spectrum, the really basic 20 entities you see most often fill up one tray with just this organ system and make it a new didactic conference for the interns. And so I proposed that. And then starting my fourth year with that first intern class when I was a fourth year, started this conference. And it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had a, a couple people did a couple lectures, but for the most part, it was me all year. And it was 7.30 in the morning. We would meet around the multi-head and I would pull together the 20 entities I wanted to talk about and we would just go through them. And the department provided food and coffee and everything. And so it was fun. And for each one in the week leading up to that intern conference, I would prepare a handout. And so I was also writing the handout I would give that out at the intern conference. So at the end of my fourth year of residency, I had the skeleton of the book. I had a handout for almost every organ system and I had a tray of slides. And then I stayed there for a year of fellowship. I did a breast cancer fellowship with Dr. Argani. And during that year, I started talking to some of the faculty at Hopkins that had published with Springer before. Dr. Westra and Dr. Rubian had done their grossing book. And they put me in touch with somebody at Springer and sort of proposed this new idea for a book, targeted at beginners. And I said, it has to be short, it has to be illustrated in color, the pictures have to be good, and it has to be cheap. Like I put that into the contract. I was like, it has to be less than $100. <laughs> like 
that's our deal. <laughs> and so I think they sent around the proposal to some educators who greenlighted it. And then I had a contract to publish. So I spent my fellowship year, I gave the intern conference again, a second time around, but then I was also photographing for the book and refining all of the chapters. I asked people at Hopkins to proofread the chapters for me, like the actual faculty, just so I didn't say anything really stupid, like make an overgeneralization that was completely sure. not true or call something by the wrong name. So that was really valuable to have access to specialists who could just proof edit it for me. But uh, by the end of that year, that's when I sent it off to the publisher. And so that was 2007. And it, yeah, as it turned out, there was a need <laughs> for, yeah. for a book for beginners. So it found its niche. So I think that your story is really important because you talk about feeling like you were so dumb and being the one asking the dumb <laughs> questions. And I think if you wanted any more validation for the fact that you were not dumb, you were not alone, and you were feeling what everybody else feels, it's the success of your book. Because I think that probably everyone else had the same questions in their head and were too embarrassed or shy or whatever to ask them. And so probably you did your co-residents a great service by, <laughs> by voicing the question that everybody wanted to ask. And I think that's important too, is because if you're at some high-powered program, right, you're surrounded by really, really smart people, you are surrounded by smart faculty. And if no one else is asking these questions, you start thinking like, is it just me? Am I alone in feeling this sense of being overwhelmed or yeah. out of our depth? And I think that actually that's a really common experience for people coming into pathology training because whereas in medical school, usually you've had some experience in a lot of the non-pathology specialties. Most people don't have, even if you do a path elective, you're not really functioning usually like a resident does. You're not given a pile of unknown slides where you're expected to figure out the diagnosis on your own. Right. It's a really different experience coming into yeah. residency because it's one thing to sit at a multi-headed scope, have a resident or faculty member talk you through features. and You're like, oh yes, of course this is right. a tubular adenoma or a follicular lymphoma. Anyone right. could recognize that. But when you get that slide right. with just a little paperwork and you got to yeah. figure out the diagnosis from scratch. That's a really different experience. And it's yeah. really scary and overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's a completely different approach than what you're taught in medical school. Pathology in medical school is what's the answer? What is this entity? Like mm -hmm. what picture does that match? But we don't practice that way at all. For us, it's what do I have to exclude so I can decide that this is X, Y, or Z? That's the one thing that frustrates me the most about the disconnect between medical school education of pathology and the practice of pathology is they're completely, it's all about just what is the right answer? What is the pattern in medical school, especially more and more as we get away from dedicated pathology courses and pathology just becomes part of, of other courses sort of around the fringes? But you don't have that diagnostic process that we teach in every other field of medicine. It's like when I was a first year in medical school, they introduce you to the differential diagnosis and it, they, a patient comes into the ER with chest pain and let's talk about how to work that up. And that is how we approach pathology. Mm -hmm. Here's a pigmented lesion. Let's talk about how to work that up. But that's not how we teach it to medical mm -hmm. students. It's this is what melanoma looks like. And no mention of what process you would go to before you even get to a diagnosis of melanoma and then how you stage it afterwards. So that transition is part of what makes residency so hard. That's a good point too in that it does us a disservice in terms of how our non-pathology colleagues 
understand our workflow, right? Because I think that if you get the sense that the way pathology works is you get a picture of a slide and instantly know what it is. And I mean, there's ant minis, there's entities where you instantly know where it is, right? Right. Like, you know, it's on my desk, done. And I love those. I wish I had more of those. And I'm sure we all do. But that's not really how it works. You don't just get the slide, immediately know what it is. In all cases, you have to do IHEs, you have to do workup. And so I think that the more you work and communicate with our clinical colleagues, our, our colleagues in other specialties, I shouldn't say yeah. clinical because we're obviously clinical as well, the more they understand that, oh, you know, oh, right. got it, you got to do stains and oh, there's molecular and this, that and the other. But I think like right. you say, the way it's taught in medical school is patient comes in, here's the picture, here's the diagnosis, boom. It's like we're that black box where you stick the tube in the machine and the answer comes out. And that's important, not only for the recruitment of people into pathology, but also just that, again, understanding the work that we do and our workflow and processes. Yeah, it's, I've made the comparison to a scratch-off lottery ticket. Like a lot of times that's what they think we're doing back here. You know, just <laughs> put it in the microscope, see what it is. You know, <laughs> just, just read the meat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Clinicians who work extensively with pathology, certainly anyone involved in oncology comes to appreciate the subtleties on the process. But yeah, there, there are whole fields in our hospital that I hardly ever interact with because they don't send us specimens or they don't treat tumors. And so I I do wish that there was some sort of a mandatory rotation for medical students that was relevant to them, show them how pathology is relevant to everyone. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the pathology pipeline, certainly on this podcast. Dr. Mars has interviewed educators from across the globe on different things that they're doing to try to improve the pipeline. And one of the issues that's come up, certainly in this country, is like you say, the shift towards pathology being on the fringes of teaching. You know, Even as we say, the way pathology is taught in medical school isn't the way it's practiced. That is still the entree that a lot of students have to interact with pathology, it is those pathologists who are teaching their courses, the pathology based materials. And I think the more you lose that, the more we really lose one of the opportunities that we have to recruit people into our field. And I'm not saying that because I want to recruit everyone to be a pathologist. Certainly that's not the case. But if you're not aware of how great the field is, and I, you know, I feel like it's fantastic. I'm not lying to these students when I tell them pathology is the best. We have the happiest people. We have the best job. I get to do the coolest things. And I think that not having those opportunities to have those little interactions with students is really a loss. And then of course, I'll get on my old person soapbox and say, I can see in both our pictures, here we are, we've got our beautiful microscopes Uh on our desk, right? And as much as we talk about digital workflow, and I think those tools are fantastic. If you don't get to use an actual microscope right now in your medical student labs, I think you lose something because it's fun. I, I love looking at the microscope and sticking a slide under there and you know yeah. looking through the objectives. There's something really satisfying about that that yeah. is is lost in translation when you move to still images or a whole slide imaging platform that may or may not be laggy depending on your network. Yeah. And I feel like slides almost have a different entities have a texture that you can appreciate at low power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can pull things out sort of on a subconscious level even. And I've never really been able to replicate that sense with virtual slides, even the really high quality ones. There's just something about the actual 
optics of a microscope that you just get used to after a while. And, and for students, it's a skill that they don't have to acquire, but it does still make it more interesting to look at. I agree. Yeah. You know, that feeling you open a slide flat, you just go, oh, oh, it's an accessory tragus or yeah. like I say, it's a pilomatrix soma. Or if you put a slide down, it's got that special tinctorial quality. Of That's right. Top. This is a paraganglioma. Yeah. Instant pattern recognition. Maybe we're just being dinosaurs here. I don't think so. But maybe if we ever do move to an all digital workflow, we'll start getting those same intangible instant pattern recognition neurons wired in our brain mm. to the digital slides. And maybe our brains will evolve as well. But I, I totally agree. I love my glass slides. And yeah. <laughs> certainly as a cytopathologist, I'm looking at smears. I don't feel like glass is going away um, anytime soon, certainly for us in cytopath. Well, and the thing that's fundamentally different between us and radiology is radiology can create their images straight to digital. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way to go straight to digital for pathology. You have to go through the glass slide to have something to scan. So in that sense, it's hard to imagine that it would ever be more efficient to do digital because you always have to create the glass to start with, you know, as that intermediate step. I have seen some studies where folks are using advanced imaging modalities. I mean, certainly there's in vivo microscopy applications sure. that folks are developing, but also some folks are working on creating three-dimensional micrographs, if you will, by imaging tissue with really, really high resolution techniques. And I wish I could speak to that in any kind of more articulate way, but <laughs> maybe if they figure out how to do it to really replicate the histology, that would be one potential. But I, I agree with you. I think glass is here for the foreseeable future. I think digital, certainly during the pandemic, has offered a lot of helpful tools for us yeah. and we just got to keep working at it and harnessing the technology. So you're a chief of pathology at a community hospital. What is community practice like? Because you know, we've talked a lot about medical education and your residency training, but a lot of residents go to practice in very different environments. Yeah. Community practice is the generalist track of pathology, especially if you're in an APCP position like most of us are. There are some hospitals that are large enough that people can subspecialize, but ours isn't one of them. So, you know, for me and for Everyone in my group, we all do everything from autopsy to pap smears. We do all the organs. We send out things that are super specialized, like medical kidney or non-neoplastic brain, that kind of thing. Our group covers a bunch of hospitals. So we have someone in our group at each hospital that is a hematopathologist. So they do the marrows. But other than that, it's the entire spectrum. And CP, we take calls. So we all take blood bank calls, just like you did in residency. And we all share medical directorship of the different laboratories. At my hospital, some places, the chief will be the medical director for every part of the lab. But here we split it up. So one of my colleagues does blood bank, one does microbiology, one does anatomic pathology, and then I'm chemistry and, and point of care and some of the heme. So I really do spend about half of my time on CP. Only half of my time is spent doing AP and the rest is between CP and admin, the chief type stuff. I, I find it really interesting to think about how we educate residents because in residency, you're learning from experts 
in their field. And so the type of information you're getting is absolutely cutting edge. And you're also at a place where they have the ability to have all of the newest antibodies or the latest molecular test or everything you want is there at your fingertips. And you kind of get used to practicing that way. And you're not, you're doing it, you know, a different month, like one month, you're doing it with the GYN pathologist, and one month, you're with the GI pathologist, and one month, you're with the GU. And so you you just you kind of learn to practice that way. And then you get out into the community, and you don't have any experts around you that wrote the most recent paper on the classification of the tumor that you're looking at. And you don't have that huge armamentarium of immunostains and uh, molecular testing. And you kind of have to learn how to practice all over again. It's a completely different type of practice. I don't know. I, I mean, I only experienced one residency, so it's hard to know what different residencies are like, but I feel like we don't prepare residents that well for community practice. That and the whole graduated responsibility thing, which is a whole nother podcast, I'm sure, (laughs) the lack of graduate responsibility. Mm -hmm. But it's exacerbated by the fact that once you're in the community, everyone that you interact with in terms of expert consultations, in terms of CME, in terms of articles, they're all still specialists. Mm -hmm. There aren't any expert generalists, not really. And so it gets really self-defeating to try to compare yourself to the specialists, right? You're Mm -hmm. never going to keep up with every field the way that a specialist can keep up with their field. Mm -hmm. And so you also have to kind of decide that, you know, find the point at which you feel comfortable. You're spread so thin that you you're spread very shallowly (laughs) in each different area. And you have to kind of get to a comfort level with that and realize how to keep up with what you don't know, because you can never keep up with all the literature. So just having to somehow keep up with that threshold of what you can safely do on your own and what you really need to send out. And I I think it's really, there's no formal training for that. And it's really a, a difficult transition. Yeah, you make such a good point. All the CME materials, there's a lot of depth, but maybe the breadth is not as wide. So what do you have in terms of advice for how residents could better prepare if they know they're going to be interested in working in a community setting? Or conversely, what programs could be doing to maybe help ease that transition or prepare residents for different types of practice? I would say anytime a resident has access to a rotation at a community hospital, to take it. I don't know if all institutions have that sort of connection, but for us at Hopkins, we had Bayview Hospital, which is not really a community hospital, but the pathologists at Bayview were generalists. They had functioned like a community hospital. So when you went out there, the GI, the GU, the breast, the GYN, it was all in the same stack. You did one sign out with one pathologist and they did everything. And I actually ended up doing almost a hybrid fellowship at Bayview. Part of my fellowship was breast, but part of it was being like a junior attending at Bayview. And that was the perfect preparation for this job. I was so lucky that that worked out because when I started here, I felt like I'd already been practicing for the job for a year. So I think it would be great if programs could design that kind of rotation for their senior residents who are considering community practice, either at their own hospital or partner with a hospital like Sinai to where residents can just practice doing that for a month or two. Number one, see if they like it, see if that's how they want to practice. And number two, just get a sense for what it's like. 
Yeah, it's really important to have those opportunities to peek outside the ivory tower, right? Because we mm-hmm. all train in these ivory towers. And I know here at Duke, we have rotations in the VA, which is not subspecialized. And we also have the opportunities to rotate and spend some time at our affiliate Duke hospitals, Duke yeah. Raleigh, Duke Regional. And I took advantage of that when I was a resident. And it was nice to even just have the opportunity to sit down with pathologists outside of the, the mothership, as it were. Yeah. And I still really enjoy those connections that I was able to make. Well, we've talked a lot about pathology. I'd love to hear from you a little bit about what do you like to do outside of pathology? Well, (laughs) it's always always embarrassing when people ask me that because I don't really have a great answer. And I start to think, you know, maybe I don't really have a life. (laughs) um, My youngest is going off to college this coming fall. Oh, wow. So Congratulations. my formal and baby that <laughs> I had while in residency. Uh, so yeah, she turned out great. So, you know, in case you have a formal and baby, it's all going to be okay. I've not heard that term, but <laughs> I have a formal and baby as well, I guess. <laughs> Lots of exposure to fumes when I was pregnant. But so, yeah, so I'm anticipating having a lot more free time coming up this fall. But most of what I end up doing when I have free time is reading, uh, just reading for fun, reading fiction. I read so much as a kid. And then once I had kids, it just became like I could almost never find time to read. Mm -hmm. And when I did pick up a book, I would binge Mm -hmm. and I would stay up until four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I couldn't put it down and I would suffer for days, you know, Mm -hmm. from the lack of sleep. Some people can read in a sort of controlled, disciplined fashion. (laughs) I'm a binge reader. So I've been getting back into reading and really enjoying that. The older my kids have gotten and the less hands-on time they've needed from me. We cook a lot at home. I like to can. I like to make jelly and jam my one trick. And then we like to travel to national park type places. We hike a lot. A few years ago, we did the the hike down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And oh, wow. Phantom Ranch and hike back out with the kids. And it was just an absolutely amazing trip. So that's what we do on our time off. That's cool. So I, I want to talk about the canning briefly. So do you garden as well? I mean, I try. We have a pretty shady yard, so it is mm. it's sort of an uphill battle. But we do have a peach tree. So you know, oh, I am wow. able to make jam from our peaches when the squirrels don't get them. But for the most part, no. The gardening is best left to the professionals as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. So I'll go to pick your own farms and come home with 12 pounds of berries. Oh my goodness. A lot of berries. It doesn't seem like that much when you're picking it. You, know, you come home and you make a batch of jam and you're like, well, that was one pound. So yeah, but it's fun. I mean, they're nice gifts. We've kind of gotten to the point where adults in my family don't really give each other gifts anymore for Christmas. We give each other things that you can eat or otherwise consume. It's a good option for family gifts. I think consumable items are the best gifts yes. because you can enjoy it. You can give yes. them an experience and then they don't have to store it. Um, That's right. Unless they're like jar hoarders or something, which I, I guess I hoard jars too. I've tried to do <laughs> some canning and usually it's because in some shocking and miraculous turn of events, one of my gardening projects turned out well <laughs> and uh-huh. I end up with a whole bunch of something like usually it's cucumbers or figs. We have a fig tree. Mm-hmm. And so each year we get this vast quantity of oh, wow. figs and so around like, I don't know, July or August, I'm basically giving figs to everyone in the department. I tried Uh, to make fig jam and I have to say I was not terribly successful. I like simmered it for maybe, I want to say the recipe said 45 minutes. I was simmering, I think till about past midnight, like three hours and it still had not gelled properly. So perhaps I did not do it right. 
I've never I... worked with figs, actually. Oh, well, <laughs> well, darn, you are not useful to me because no, I was not. hoping to get some tips. <laughs> now, you know what? The one thing I can reliably grow in my shady yard is hot peppers. And so Ooh. I have made a lot of pepper jelly. Mm. That's uh, sort of my, <laughs> one of my things now. <laughs> oh, I like hot pepper jelly. My kids are young, so they're unwilling to eat anything spicy unless they're otherwise very incentivized to eat it. Like they'll eat hot and spicy Cheetos. But uh-huh. nothing else hot and spicy. Uh-huh. It's, it's like that. it's a selective <laughs> spice tolerance, like so much is selective in children. But great. So have you been able to do some hiking with your family this year? I feel like during the pandemic, that's one of the things that we can do in travel. Yeah, there's not a ton of places right around here or around Baltimore to do really serious hiking. So that's why we like to travel the national parks. We go to Maine a lot, Acadia. We have family in Acadia and there's great hiking there. But one of the places we had intended to go, we had been planning on going last year was the Rockies. We'd never been to the Rocky Mountain National Park and the kids really wanted to see it. And it became pretty clear by about March that that wasn't going to happen last year. But we had the time blocked out on the calendar. I had two weeks off from work. And we just, you know, kind of sat on it. We didn't have plane tickets, but we had campground reservations because I had made them 10 months in advance because that's what you have to do in some of these really popular national parks. And we just sat on it and we just didn't make a decision. Our reservations were for August And it was June and we're just like, what are we going to do? We were really hoping that maybe by then we would feel comfortable flying, but we certainly didn't. And I was like, you know what? Let's just drive. (laughs) (laughs) My husband's like, it's three days. (laughs) You're out of your mind. I was like, nope. Nope, let's drive. You know, it's like oh. the kids have never driven all the way across the country. Yeah. It's this sort of formative experience, you know. It's the great and, American road trip, exactly, right? Exactly. And, you know, we had family. We had family in Dayton that we could visit. My uh, youngest wanted to see Wash U as a college mm-hmm. visit. We were, were going to drive right through St. Louis. I was like, no, it's perfect. So, you know, I finally, like the kids were on, you know, on board right away. Like they both actually <laughs> really like long car drives. They just kind of like go dormant in the back seat. You know. <laughs> well, they're not the ones doing the driving. Exactly. Right? That's, like right. It's That's much, right. It's much easier if you can just be a chauffeur yeah. anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's like a really nice bus. So I finally talked him into it. And so we struck out on this three-day cross-country trip. And it was weird because it was in the height of COVID and we packed all of our food and we only stopped at rest stops where we could eat at these picnic areas out by the side of the road. And we were eating peanut butter and jelly every day. And we had this big cooler full of sodas and yogurt. And so it was a very different type of vacation than we usually, usually we do like to eat out when we go on vacations, but we couldn't do any of that. And, and it also, (laughs) it had been such an intense year. It had this kind of like pilgrimage quality to Mm. it. Like it was this, you know, we were getting out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and also yeah. I had read Stephen King's The Stand where they oh my goodness. road trip to Denver because the world has ended after a plague. So maybe that was in my, in my <laughs> yeah. but it was a really cool trip. It was a lot of fun. I don't know that I would do it again, that kind of a drive, but it was amazing. And then we got there and in the park, they reduced the number of people that could come in, except if you had a campground mm-hmm. reservation. So there was hardly anybody in the park. (sighs) So we got, you know, free run of this amazing national park that normally you're just fighting with crowds Mm. the whole time. And so the hiking was amazing and it was really a phenomenal trip. 
So I'm wow. glad we did it. Wow. I love that idea. I've been trying to uh, sell my husband on the Great American Road Trip. So I, I feel like I have some kinship with your road trip because when I grew up, I come from a family of immigrants. I was born in China. My parents were from China and moved here. And my dad was a postdoc. We didn't have a whole lot of money, but my parents were really adventurous. And they're like, they were excited to see this new country that they had moved to. So we took so many incredibly long car rides in like our little, I think it was like, I don't know, like a Honda Accord or something (laughs) driving from Chicago. uh, We drove to Orlando. We drove to Montreal. We drove to Yellowstone and Yosemite. And so I grew up on these kind of cross country road trips where I just was chauffeured. I read a lot in the back of these car rides. And much like your experience, we had a cooler full of Uh snacks and yep. like yep. like Chinese snacks. <laughs> and so I, as a kid, I was really trying to be American. So we passed by McDonald's. I'd be like, hey, I'm feeling kind of hungry. Like, like maybe we could stop and get a happy meal and I could get a toy. The American experience, my mom would be like, no, <laughs> go in the cooler. We've got tea eggs in there. <laughs> and so I'm like, yes, I have done that kind of road trip. And yeah. I've been trying to sell my husband on this road trip. He's like, I don't know. It's, it's too much driving. And I'm like, oh, no, come on. Chicago to Orlando across the country. It's fine. It's fine. Again, I think that my perspective might've been skewed by the fact that I didn't have to do the actual driving. Right. Right. But yeah. I did wind up doing most of the driving for this trip since Uh, I pushed him into it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that seems fair. It was totally pleasant. There was no traffic either. It's not like driving around here. It's just driving on a wide open road. So that's actually fun. That's definitely less stressful. And you can listen to podcasts or music. And those are really probably some very wonderful family memories that'll stick with your kids too. So that's great. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. It was really fun to hear your story of how the survival guide came about. Anything coming down the pipeline in terms of the survival guide? Are you starting to work on a third edition? Oh, gosh. No, I'm certainly not. And I haven't (laughs) even yet decided if I would ever do one. (laughs) 10 years between the first two and another 10 years from now, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's definitely a book that I think has been so valuable and I definitely appreciate. And I know that trainees everywhere appreciate the work that you put into that. And hopefully 10 years down the line, if you're not willing to do it, you'll find someone to take up the reins and keep the book going because it has been such a valuable resource. Not not only because it helps us survive those late nights when I'm just trying to, you know, sign out a ditzel for the first time. Like, what do I say about this hernia sack? But also to make us feel not so alone when folks are starting the pathology residency, that someone's thought about them, been in those shoes, and has created a resource to help guide you through those steps. So I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for all you've done to teach and make the transition into residency easier and more successful successful for generations of pathologists. Thank you. It was really fun to, to do this. So thanks for the invitation. Thanks. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. 
As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. PathPod.